Good, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to East Shore Baptist Church. I'm glad that you're here with us today in worship. I'm also thankful for those of you watching online. Here at East Shore, what we do is we open God's Word and we walk through a passage, passage by passage, text by text, and we've been doing that in the Gospel of Mark. And that brings us to a passage that might surprise us, because when we think about religious things, spiritual things, it might surprise us to know that Jesus actually has a lot of thoughts about topics like sex, marriage, and divorce. And we're going to look at them here in our passage, which is Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. He speaks on it here in other places, such as Matthew 19. But what's really interesting about our passage today is how Jesus approaches this topic. He doesn't just say, here's what, here's what I think, or here's what God says, here's a list of rules to follow. That's not the way he goes about it. Instead, he's asked about divorce, and he takes the time to unpack God's heart, to help us understand how does God feel about this? What is God's purpose or intention? He spends time there before he gets to the question at hand. So on the surface, you may even have a heading or something that says teaching about divorce or something like that. That may seem to be where the focus is, but really the passage is more about topics like marriage and God's purpose for sex. But at its heart, this passage is really about how can we approach God about topics we're confused about, controversial topics, topics that impact us every day. Our passage will help us to get there. Now, as we dive into this, though, I have to, and I will several times caveat some things I'm saying, but they discretionary statement beforehand, I, I need to beg for your patience as we go through here, because we're talking about incredibly complicated and incredibly difficult topics. And it's impossible for me to cover every detail, every situation that every person has ever experienced. So as we're going through this, if I say something that bothers you or, or that you're not sure about, I, I'd ask you to, to wait, to listen, to hear the whole thing together and don't just like tune me out, well, I don't think that's right, and shut your brain off. Instead, think about, okay, but how does this all fit together? After all, this is a sermon. It's not a tweet. I'm not in 140 characters telling you truth here. This is a message that comes together to share about God's Word. It's a truth in this passage that will impact all of us. I would also ask you that as we're approaching this topic to have the right attitude, to have the attitude of what is God saying to me? How is he working in my heart through this text? To not have the attitude of judging someone else. The point of me sharing a sermon is for you, each of us individually, to grow closer to God. It's not to make you feel better than somebody else. And don't listen to this sermon thinking about, oh, I know someone who needs to hear this. No, think about what is the application I can take from this message. After all, things like divorce are messy and complicated. And my reason sharing this is not so you can look at somebody else and say, oh, whether or not they're doing it in a God-honoring way. That's not what we're trying to do. We don't know all the details of their situation, and no two cases are the same. I also am not really interested in after this message you coming out saying, so-and-so did this, Pastor John, what do you think about that? I, I, I really don't have a desire to have those conversations. Now, if you want to talk about your own experience and process through it, I'd be willing to do that. But again, that's not really what I'm looking for. My hope is that we'd all be challenged by God's Word, how God thinks about these topics. And we'd be encouraged by His love, grace, and affection for us. 
and that we'd also learn how can each of us approach God about whatever controversial topic we're thinking about. Since we're, we're covering such things that are so controversial, so emotional, we're, I'm not going to take time like we normally do to read at the beginning. Instead, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump in. Okay, to begin. Lord, as we come before you about, in some ways, difficult, in some ways, very personal topics, these things like divorce, marriage, sex, God, I pray you'd give us the ears to hear your word and your truth. After all, we're listening to Jesus, the Son of God, speak. I pray, God, that as we read this, we would realize that it's un helpful and unhealthy for us to come to you with the list of our own demands, the things we want and desire. And instead, we should listen to what your word says, what you have said. Help us to see, God, the immense value you place on marriage, the importance that should have in our lives. And so as we apply your word, may it lead us away from the pressures of the world toward engaging in our own lust and desires and separating what you have put together. Instead, God, help us to draw closer to you. Even though this topic talks about personal things, I pray, God, that as we look at it, our own personal thoughts, how we're wrapped up in ourselves, would fade away so that we could see clearly your goal, your desire, your purpose for marriage, for sex. May we see you, Jesus, clearly, because all of these things are just a picture of your love for us. Again, God, may our focus be on you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the way this passage comes together, in particular, focuses on how we can figure out what God thinks about topics like this. And at the beginning of the passage, we see an example of an unhealthy practice or an unway to figure out what God thinks. And an unhealthy practice would be asking permission for our desires, to know what we want and we desire, and then ask God, is that okay? Look at our text here. We're in Mark chapter 10. The words will also be on the screen. You can use the blue Bible in front of you. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 and 2. Mark 10, 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, And he, Jesus, he left there where he was. He went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And as he's teaching them, verse 2 says, some Pharisees, some religious leaders came up and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So in this passage, Jesus has left where he had been before in the northern part of Israel, his kind of home base of Capernaum. He's beginning a journey toward the capital city of Jerusalem, where he will in the end die on a cross. Right now, though, he's in an area north of the city of Jericho near the Jordan River, and some crowds gather around him, and as is Jesus's passion, his goal, why he's there, he's teaching them, he's sharing with them the good news about God, even though he knows some of their hearts are hardened. And lo and behold, here are some of those whose hearts are hardened, these Pharisees, these religious leaders. They come to him, they question him, they want to test him, to trap him in his words and discredit him by asking him about divorce. It's not only something impactful, controversial now, it was also the case then. 
And there's a lot of pressure around this topic. On the one hand, perhaps their thoughts are about John the Baptist. We talked about him a few weeks ago. If you remember, John the Baptist was very critical of King Herod, the ruler of that area, criticized his marriage and his divorce and remarriage of his brother's wife. And so maybe they think, well, we can get Jesus to say something like that, that the authorities will arrest him. On the other hand, in this time, the Jewish scholars and rabbis of the day had a big debate about divorce and the extent of it and where it was allowed. Different rabbis taught different things. Divorce is okay here, it's not okay there. There were some who said you can only get a divorce if there's sexual immorality, if someone cheats. Others were a bit looser in their restrictions. This isn't on the screen. I didn't want to put this on the screen. I'll just read this. But one rabbi said, if the wife cooks her husband's food ill by over-salting it or over-roasting it, she is to be put away. So this is the debate and the extremes that were going on at that time. And these Pharisees want to know, Jesus, what side are you on there? But the point I have on your outline is I think referring to the, the heart of their question, kind of a darker purpose behind this question. Because when they're asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, maybe in their head they're thinking about those debates, but I think in the end it boils down to a question of what is permissible? Exactly how far can we go in this? Can we divorce our wives if we want to marry someone else? Really, at the heart of that is the question, what are the restrictions God places on sex? If I want to sleep with somebody else, is there a way for that to happen? I think that's the heart of their question. And so Jesus, he responds with a question of his own. He answered them and said, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command in the Old Testament law about divorce? It's like Jesus is saying, you guys are asking the wrong question. You're starting with, can we do this? Where you need to start with is, what does God say about it? Don't ask what's allowed, ask what God says. We need to start with what God created, what he designed and intended before we get to the point of knowing what we should do now. The Pharisees miss this though. They, they respond directly with the question Jesus has. They say, well, Moses allowed, he permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away, to divorce her. When they say this, they're referring to one passage in the Old Testament law from Deuteronomy chapter 24 that did talk about that. But in doing that, they're missing the purpose of why that was there. I'm not having us go there for the sake of time, but that passage actually is not about when you're allowed to get a divorce. It's actually a passage about protecting a woman, a wife, from being exploited by her husband. The passage is really about saying that a husband can't divorce his wife for a time and then bring her back again when, when he wants her again. That's what the passage is saying shouldn't happen. Because this was a day and age when men had almost all the power to initiate divorces, dismiss their wives. And so what the Pharisees have done is they pulled that passage out of its context and said, well, Moses said that we could do it. He said we could give them a certificate of divorce and send them away. And Jesus points this out in verse 5. He says, you're actually missing it. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he, Moses, wrote you this commandment. 
This command, this law, this precept you're referring to only came about because our hearts are hard and sinful against God. This command was a concession to humankind's sinful nature. It was not God's desire, his hope for his people. One pastor I was reading, Jason Meyer, put it this way, in a perfect world, divorce would not happen. But God gave this commandment because he knew it would. God intended for divorce not to exist in this world, but the reason he put that command in Deuteronomy is because he knew it would. In some ways, it's like he's giving reluctant permission through Moses. Our hard-heartedness, our rebellion against God brings sin, death, darkness, destruction in the world, brings things like divorce into the world. But these instructions were not part of God's original design. They only became necessary when sin entered the world. So Jesus is saying, you guys are hammering in on this, but you're missing God's purpose. You're just focused on your own desires. By approaching it this way, Jesus is exposing our sinful human nature. It's something true of all of us. We always seek what's convenient. We seek what is easy, what benefits us, and what satisfies our desires. We don't want to make sacrifices. We want to have our pleasures met. I want this. I want to get it. God, can I get it? We approach God and his word often looking for permission. This is what I want to do, God. Is there somewhere in here that can justify that action? Can I do what I want? And when we're talking about this topic, this is the way we think about it a lot. Our culture is wrapped up in this idea that marriage, sex, these things are about our pleasure, what makes us feel good, what we want. The message we get about marriage is, hey, if your marriage isn't working for you, then you can get out of it. There's a whole industry built around this idea of divorce. I remember a couple years ago, I saw a bumper sticker once that said, divorce coach, thinking about divorce, I can help. Someone who made their life about it. Now, I don't know that person, their story, so, you know, but just focus on the fact that there at least exists a role. Somebody can have that job for this. But maybe you respond to that, well, uh, I won't get married at all. I can just have sex whenever I want. The culture says, you can, you should, you should be having sex. Get it any way you can, what you feel is right, and you should live that out. Sleep with who you want, when you want to. And when these things are devalued, it has impacts throughout culture. This is a quote from the British pastor J.C. Ryle. He probably wrote this close to 150 years ago, but look how applicable it is for today. He says, it's a fact clearly ascertained. You can see it clearly that polygamy, having, you know, it's marrying otherwise, having multiple partners, and the permission to divorce on slight grounds, these things have a direct tendency to promote immorality. And so in short, the nearer a nation's laws about marriage approach the law of Christ, the higher the moral tone of that nation has always proved to be. If we view marriage the way God does, think about the way he does, then the morality of the culture rises to that. If we think about it just by ourselves and what we want, we can see evidence of that in the world around us. I mean, you can just think about it, looking at it. I do have a statistic to illustrate that. But before I I share it, I want to 
say what I am and not saying. By sharing the statistic, I'm not trying to belittle someone who struggles with temptation or identity and is working through those issues and needs prayer and support. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to illustrate what happens when we make marriage and sex first and foremost about our pleasure rather than what God says. So the statistic I'm going to share was one actually Pastor Tom shared with me from Gallup poll recently. And it was that Gen Z, so Gen Z are those born between 1997 and 2004, that those in Gen Z, 19.7, not 9.7, but 19.7% of those in Gen Z identify as LGBT. That's, that's almost 20% of Gen Z, or one in five in that age. Again, I'm not trying to belittle that, that struggle there, but I think it's important for us to wrestle with how does that happen. It's not because there's something wrong with kids these days. The problem is we, as a culture, we have made sex about pleasure. We made it about our own pleasure rather than about what God has said. And so it's not helpful to get mad at the rest of the world, say they're messing things up. Instead, we need to recognize how do we contribute to this? Do we speak about marriage and sex in a way that glorifies the pleasure of it rather than what God has said? And so if we make it about pleasure, then we're starting in the wrong place. That's what the Pharisees are doing as well. They're just focused on divorce. But they're saying, we want what we want. Jesus says, you're at the wrong place. And a better approach would instead be to look at God's word, to look at God's word. Not just doing a word search for the particular words we're thinking about, but really seeing what God's intention is. Because the Pharisees were looking at God's word. They, they obviously didn't have Bible software, but if they lived today, they typed in divorce, they saw that verse, and they said, great, we're good to go. And Jesus said, no, what is God's intention, his desire? And the way Jesus does this is he goes back to the beginning and points out how God was intimately involved in creating the world. He was purposeful in what he was doing. Look at what Jesus says in verses uh, 6 through 8. Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, and here he quotes the Old Testament, God made them male and female. And another quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. To answer this question, Jesus goes back to the beginning. And he's saying that human beings were created by God. They were created male and female. That quote he has is from the very first chapter of the Bible. He says human beings were created male and female, both with equal worth and dignity before God. His point is if you want to answer the question about divorce, you have to look at God's intention for marriage. And he's saying God created marriage. It's not a man-made ceremony. It's a divine institution. He's saying it's intended to be the uniting of man and woman, this heterosexual couple, this biological man and woman before God. And maybe we want to push back on that. Maybe we don't like that, but that's what Jesus is saying marriage is. He's saying, go back to the beginning, see how God describes it. He's saying marriage existed right when God first made what we see. It's not something that, that showed up later. In fact, it exists before there's even sin in the world. It was around before then. 
I, I don't have this in here, but th- there's a misconception that goes around that the first sin was sex or something like that. No, marriage, sex, those things existed before there was sin in the world. They were created by God. Marriage existed then. It's not supposed to be restrictive. It's part of God's perfect good. In and only in marriage is where a man is to be, as verse 7 says, is to hold fast, be joined, be united to his wife, become one flesh. If you have older versions, they may have cleave to his wife. This image of being stuck together after being joined by God. And so in a marriage, it's no longer primarily two different individuals. It's one united couple. That's what that verse, Genesis 2, 24 says. The two shall become one flesh. That's what he's quoting in verse 8. They are together in life and body. They live together, and yes, they sleep together. They have sex. Marriage is to be a covenant, a binding agreement of intimacy. And therefore, God's intention is that it's the only place that sex should be. Marriage is meant to be this permanent, and by permanent, I mean lifelong union, one that existed at the beginning and is God's delight. One man, one woman, together, intimate, united, until death separates them. Jesus takes time to look at this because the question was about divorce, but he says, I could answer that question, but in order for you to understand my answer, we need to start with how God created this to begin with. But for our purposes, for clarity, let's try to summarize what Jesus is saying here. What does the Bible, what is Jesus saying about marriage? Well, I put a little little definition in your seat, trying to look at that, what he was saying there. This is one I came up with. It's not perfect, but marriage is an intimate, lifelong covenant. On your sheet, I think I forgot the word intimate. I think that's important to convey that we're talking about there's a joining together here. So if you want to write that in, marriage is an intimate, but your blank is lifelong, an intimate, lifelong covenant agreement between one, to specify, biological man, one biological woman. Again, by my specifying that, I'm not trying to diminish somebody who's struggling with their identity. I know that can be a very difficult struggle, and there's certainly people who would love to talk to you and help you and work through those things. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. I'm trying to speak to God's truth and his intention. His intention was for marriage to tie a husband and wife together until one spouse passes. There's passages like Romans 7 that talk about that. It's not something we grow out of. It's something we grow deeper in. And why is this the definition of marriage? Why am I insisting on this? Well, because scripture also reveals to us that marriage is not just this, Marriage is actually a picture of the relationship that Jesus has with us, that Jesus has with his church, his people. The passage that really goes into that is what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. He says more about this, but I'm jumping in at the end of this. So here he's telling husbands that husbands need to love and sacrifice for their wives. And this is why he says it. He starts in verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And look, he's quoting the same verse that Jesus quoted. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying God's intention and purpose is that when we see a husband and wife come together, it's representing in the same way what Jesus did for his people. Jesus came to earth, lived for them, sacrificed for them, died for them, and will someday be united with them. Marriage is a picture of that relationship. The very gospel we proclaim that we are sinners separated from God and Jesus needed to save us, that is what a marriage is supposed to reflect. And so in God's sight, in the end, a marriage is not really about the husband and the wife, it's about Jesus. It's to be these two sinners who have been united in their desire to reflect Jesus, to grow closer to Him. And so our marriages are to look forward to that ultimate marriage that is to come when Jesus is united with all of his people forever. And there's so much we could reflect on on that. That's something that we could spend hours, years, a lifetime reflecting on. One encouragement we can take from that is it means that marriage is not ultimate. This is less common in our day, but there's still sometimes pressure that you have to get married because marriage is ultimate. It's the most important thing. You're not a grown-up until you get married in your life. But look what Paul says here. He says marriage is actually about Jesus, so you're not less than if you aren't married. Because if, whether you are or aren't, if you know Jesus, you're engaged to him. Someday he will be your spouse, the best one that there is. But it also shows us the value of marriage, because if we have a healthy, biblical, Christ-centered marriage, then it shows the rest of the world this is how Jesus loves us. His love shows us that marriage is hard work. It involves sacrifice because it's supposed to be focused on the other person. Jesus didn't say, you know, it'd be really nice if I had a wife, so I think I'm going to go to the cross. No, he said, I'd love these people. I'm going to sacrifice for them. That's the attitude to take into marriage. It makes it inconvenient and difficult, but it's God's desire for our physically intimate relationships. And this reason, this union between Christ and us, that's why marriage and marriage alone is the context in which sexual relationships should occur. In fact, it's the place where a relationship on earth that has some of the most potential joy and pain in life. Again, Pastor Ryle says about marriage, in no relation is so much earthly happiness to be found if it's entered into discreetly, that we use that word to mean hidden, he means thinking about it, advisedly and in the fear of God. But on the other hand, is none is so much misery seen to follow if it be taken in hand, if you enter it unadvisedly, without asking people lightly, wantonly, just because you want to, and without thought. Some of the highest joys that can be experienced in life are tied into the joys of marriage, and some of the lowest depths of darkness can also be found there. Because it's powerful, particularly the sexual intimacy is powerful, and God designed it that way. Now you may say, John, this has very little to do with divorce. Why are we spending all this time here? Because the benefit of starting here is knowing and seeing God's heart. And if we see God's heart, then that helps us answer the question, of how he thinks about things like divorce. And if God created marriage to reflect Jesus, if his design is it for it to be lifelong, then the point Jesus is going to get to is divorce shouldn't make sense. We'll, we'll talk about it more, but he's saying that that would be against God's purpose if it ended. 
And the Bible gets to divorce. We will too. But I really want us to feel the weight before we get there of God's intention. Marriage is to be this lifelong binding, this joining. Just as Jesus always loves us, just as he will never abandon us. So his instruction to us is, if we're married, you should not put aside your spouse. God's desire is reconciliation, restoration, if possible. But we also see other things looking at this picture. Again, we could spend a long time here. But if, we're, if this is the picture God has of marriage, that means any definition of marriage that doesn't fit that doesn't work. It's not reflecting God's design, His purpose of these two different things coming together to reflect His love for us. And in the same way, engaging in sex outside of marriage doesn't fit this picture either. We may look at this, all these things we're talking about marriage, and say, well, then I just won't get married, and that will fix the problem. But it doesn't, because sex is only to be experienced in marriage. It's a powerful connection. And without the safety, the binding covenant agreement, it's easy for there to be pain and exploitation in it. Again, this is something that's not hard to see. Look around the world, countless cases of assault, rape, things like Me Too, Church Too, all of this stuff bear out the great danger of sex outside of God's design. Now, maybe you push back on that. Maybe you say, well, uh, that hasn't been my experience with sex. And, and maybe it's not, and praise God for that. But at the same time, it's supposed to reflect this permanent bond between Jesus and his church. And if it's not in that context, it's not reflecting that. This is how Jesus is approaching this topic. Instead of looking at our desires, he's starting with, what does God's word say? What is God's intention? And if we do that, we see marriage is meant to be a lifelong, exclusive covenant between a husband and and wife. And so now that we've seen God's heart and desire, now we can apply God's word. We're impatient. We want to jump that right away. God, I I want to know what I'm supposed to do right now. And Jesus is saying, well, understand who God is and what he cares about before you get there. But now we are here at applying God's word, applying God's word, not starting with our desires, but looking at his word and now applying it. The way Jesus does that is he uses all these scriptures he just said to answer the question. Look at verse 9 in our passage. He lists all those Old Testament verses. God made them male and female, therefore they shall, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they're one flesh. And here's his conclusion, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. His logic is this is what it said, The conclusion is what God has joined together. Do not let any person separate it, split apart. Don't rebel against God by tearing apart what he has united. His point is, if at all possible, do not divorce. Then later, Jesus is alone in a house with his disciples. There's an opportunity for some more discussion, and he brings a bit more clarity to this. Verses 10 through 12 says, In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus says simply, whoever, man or woman, divorces and marries another commits adultery. On a side note, we 
see something surprising here. He says, speaking to both the husband or the wife, which in a first century Jewish context, it's surprising he highlights the wife being able to do this as well, showing the value he places on women. But his point here is that divorcing, again, he's answering the Pharisee's question really for self-centered reasons is what he means. If we divorce for self-centered reasons, that is like committing adultery. And that's a serious charge because adultery was in the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament law says that's punishable by death. It's very serious. And Jesus is saying, my people should think about divorce the same way. It's extremely serious. Now, if we know some of the Bible, we may say, it seems like something's missing here in Mark. Because if we go to other places like Matthew 19, it's worded this way. It says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And let me tell you, there has been much, much, much ink spilled over the difference between these two passages. I'm going to spare you all of that and say there's debate, there's disagreement. I think the most likely thing there is in the Mark passage, sexual immorality is assumed because, again, that would have been something that would be punishable by death in Old Testament law. But the point that Jesus is making, whatever our answer is, is that divorce is very serious. So that's what Jesus says. Now let's talk about us. Let's take time to apply this to our lives, to really understand what is he conveying about divorce and how does that impact us. And before I get into this, again, let me clarify, I know there's lots of different opinions about this. There's many people trying to be faithful to God's word who may word this differently than others. And I want to highlight the main point I think I've already emphasized. God's purpose for marriage does not include divorce. Jesus is trying to convey that divorce is not a good thing. It is a serious thing, a tragic thing. It's breaking something that was not intended to be broken. In some circumstances, it may be necessary, but it's not something to be celebrated. It's an unfortunate result of sin in the world. And so on your outline, the next thing is we're going to look at the two biblical... On your sheet says reasons. I, I reflected on this after I did the notes and the PowerPoint. I think a better word is grounds rather than reasons. So if, if I were you, I'd cross out reasons and I'd write grounds instead. But two biblical reasons or grounds for divorce. The reason I say that is because neither of these things are saying you have to if this happens. It's saying here's a ground, a, a biblically valid reason to possibly pursue this. Not if this happens, then you must. So the two the Bible gives us are sexual morality and abandonment. Let's start with that first one, sexual immorality. We already saw that in that Matthew passage. Another place in Matthew says this, Jesus is speaking about God's law, and he says it was also said, here he quotes that passage from Deuteronomy we talked about, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But remember, the goal of that passage was to protect the wife from being exploited. So Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is this sexual immorality. And by that, I think a good definition would be unrepentant sexual unfaithfulness. It's not an excuse for divorce, but it's a way to be rescued from being exploited. And it's important because if someone is pursuing sexual satisfaction outside of marriage, then they've broken that covenant, that binding agreement between the husband and wife. 
Again, it's not a requirement for divorce. The Bible praises extending grace even when someone doesn't deserve it. There's a powerful story in the Old Testament about a prophet named Hosea. His wife cheats on him, commits sexual morality, ends up in sex slavery. And Hosea goes and he pays, he buys his wife back out of that sex slavery, restores that relationship. The Bible puts forward a hope for restoration, not a guarantee in every case, but a hope. But still, this, this reason, this ground for divorce is here in the Bible. It's here to prevent one spouse from taking advantage of another. It's here to teach us an important truth that neither the husband nor the wife gets free reign sexually. It's not supposed to be restrictive. It's supposed to be where marriage is where a sexual relationship is meant to be. It's supposed to be where physical desire meets emotional connection. And when these are separated, then God's picture, His design, is marred. It's a warning to us to not pursue our own way in contrast to God's Word. And if we're married, it's an encouragement to honor our spouses in our minds and with our bodies. So that's one reason. The second one was abandonment. And you can see this in places like 1 Corinthians 7, which says, if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if an unbeliever abandons their spouse, then they may divorce. Again, just because a reason is here doesn't mean it have to, it just means it's allowed and permitted. But when we put everything else together, it really just fits into those two categories. Those are the only two biblical grounds for divorce, sexual immorality and abandonment. They exist to protect the innocent. I think particularly, again, in this day, to protect women who didn't have a lot of options to provide for themselves. But they also give an important lesson to us today. If we're looking on the outside of a marriage, we can see that divorce is always the result of the fact that there's sin in the world. But it may not necessarily be the fact that one person individually sinned to bring it about. Now, before I, I wrap up, I do want to do a little kind of sidebar on it. These are the only two reasons the Bible brings to the forefront. But if you're of a more critical mindset, your mind may go, but what if a spouse, one spouse is abusing another? Isn't that a reason for divorce? And so let me be clear on that. God hates all forms of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual. Every person is created in the image of God. They have unique worth, value, and dignity. God desires for suffering to end. He brings his justice, if not in this life, then in the next. And there are many scholars I read who would make the argument that if one spouse is abusing another, then they're not reflecting a Christ-centered heart. And if they claim to be a Christian, if they're a member of the church, a church should pursue church discipline. And if that abuser refuses to repent, then the church should excommunicate him, no longer recognize that person as a believer. And then they would be an unbeliever abandoning their spouse because they're not living with them in a Christ-honoring way as a believer. Now, in all that, these issues are very complicated. They require much thought and prayer, not one-size-fit-all model. You should give counsel with other believers. But the most important thing I want to say is if you are or if you have experienced abuse, if you feel unsafe, then get help. Get help. If you 
If there is abuse or even the threat of abuse, I'd encourage you to call an abuse hotline, separate from that person, involve the appropriate authorities now. We will help with that. There's other organizations that will help. Your safety is most important. Maybe someday restoration could come to that relationship, but your safety is first. God cares for his people. It does not bring him pleasure to see them in pain. Now, there's more that could be said about that, but I wanted to make sure I talked about that before we wrap up. So we've looked at God's word. We've seen that instead of starting with our desires, we should look at what he says and then apply it. So how do we do this? How can each of us apply this to our lives? I'm going to try to bring out application for each of us, whatever place of life we're in. Let's say you're someone who's not married. I hope you learn from this and see just how serious marriage is, how serious God takes it. It's not something to rush into. It's something to think very carefully about. If you're not married, but you'd like to be married, know that marriage is a good, it's a God-honoring thing. Continue to pray for it, seek after it. But in the meantime, live in purity, in thought and action. Don't buy the lie the world sells you that you need to experience sex outside of marriage. That's not God's intention. But by the same token, if you have experienced sex outside of marriage, that doesn't mean you're broken as a person. That doesn't mean all hope is gone. It, that is a moment for God's grace to meet you. Repent, turn from that sin, trust in Him, know His comfort and grace. And if you're not married, whatever phase of life you're in, I encourage you to pray for the marriages of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Support and encourage couples as you can. So that's if you're not married. What if you are married? If you are married, then... I think Jesus is getting his point of clear. He's saying, stay that way. Stay that way, if at all possible. Now, maybe your marriage is unhappy, and if that's the case, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry for that experience, and I know that must be extremely difficult. But you, I, I need to tell you from God's word that divorce is not God's desire. Don't make it an option. Get counseling and help and trust God. Now, what if you are happily married? Well, then don't be content with that. Instead, seek to help others. Pastor R.C. Sproul, I like how he put it. He said, we should be doing everything in our power to prepare our children to be good spouses and to strengthen existing marriages. This is our, our focus. If we get this right, then there can be greater impact. Culture is not going to change until we do. Instead of criticizing, complaining, we invest in supporting marriage as the people we know. And likewise, we shouldn't look down on those who have been divorced because it's only by God's grace that we're not in the same situation. And then finally, what if you're somebody who's been divorced? If, if that's true, you can hear me, I'm, I'm very sorry for that experience. I'm sure it was incredibly painful and difficult. And my goal in sharing this is not to stigmatize you or to make you feel like a failure. And let me assure you that the fact that you were divorced does not have to define who you are. Instead, I encourage you to examine your heart and turn to God for his comfort, love, and grace. Now, maybe I've shared this and you're like, well, but pastor, I don't think I was divorced for one of those biblical reasons, or I'm unsure about that. Please understand what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to make you relive pain of the past. If you've been remarried since then, I'm not telling you to go back and try to fix something. 
No, practice God's standard of faithfulness to your new spouse. What I am trying to do is challenge you with his word, challenge you with his truth, but also share his comfort and his grace that he provides. Even if you've been divorced for an unbiblical reason, you are not beyond God's grace. Sin, yes, does have consequences, but God offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's the message we proclaim here, that we chose to sin and fall away from God, but he sent his son to love us and care for us while we were still sinners, to die even when we did wrong, to pay for sin even when when we didn't care, to provide a way to God even when we ran from him, to call us to repent, to turn from that sin, to leave that behind and say, Jesus, I want to know you and follow you. That is what he calls us to. Do you know him? Have you turned to him? If you haven't or you don't know him, I'd encourage you to talk to someone about that. Talk to someone about how can I know Jesus, this grace and comfort that you're talking about. All of us, though, I think this may be hard passage, it seems, but I think it also can be a source of great joy and comfort because it should direct our minds to Christ. Marriages are meant to be a picture of his relationship to us. And friends, here's the good news about Jesus. He will never divorce us. The, uh, this was a Puritan, William Bridge, who I've been reading a bit lately. And he wrote this. He said, men indeed put away, men people divorce. But if ever the Lord Christ matches himself to you, he will never put you away again. Praise him for his love for us.